To ship, of course. It is that time again, time again for uh, build, engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. It's the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on the Tweeter Sphere, and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. And who is with me on this summer, July, summer evening for episode 57? This is Pete Cheslock at Pete Cheslock on Twitter. And this is Yusuf at BuildScientist on Twitter and BuildScientist.com. How is everybody doing? Awesome. Yeah, doing great. That's always good to hear. For episode 57, we're going to be talking with a number of community managers from companies you know and love about their jobs, uh, what community management is, why it matters in the DevOps context, and uh, we're going to explore a little a bit of that space, why so many of the companies whose products we use actually have community managers and why that's important. But first up, uh, as we always do, news and views kick off the show. First news and views item uh, was the uh, Truck Factor survey. We'll link to it, of course, in, in uh, the the show notes, it was Valente Avellino, it looks like, who did a survey of um, a number of famous projects on GitHub, and then they calculated the truck factor. For those that don't know, the truck factor is the number of trucks that I guess would have to hit an individual b- before a project would die. Did you see this? Did you did you see this paper? It's kind of interesting. I did. I did see it. It is, it is, it is pretty interesting. I'm kind of wondering, do they have some kind of a tool that uh, would allow us to generate the truck factor, or is this just some manual um, I think data, data crunching that they did? That's a really good... Because I'm I'm looking at the I'm looking at the uh, the get they have a GitHub repo and it's just a down, at, yeah. Yeah, down, at, down at the bottom they have a like a paper you know like an official done oh, okay. published paper that I guess isn't peer reviewed yet but that goes through like the abstract and the details of what they're doing but I don't actually know if it's like actually able to be downloaded without signing up or you know viewing it without giving your all your data away to some other company but it's interesting though they how they calculated it they looked at basically how many files fifty percent more of the system files are orphans based on authors. So that's how they calculate the truck factor. In other words, they, they looked at, uh, as soon as a majority of the files didn't have an owner, then they looked at how many authors were left, and that was where they had that factor. It's interesting to me to note that Chef is a truck factor of four. Puppet Labs have a, has a truck factor of six. Yeah, I'm kind of curious on, I'm trying to like understand the truck factor. It actually looks like the, the projects with le- the least amount of people that contribute to them have the highest truck factors like homebrew i'm pretty yeah. sure maintained by one individual and obviously like linux is obviously maintained by essentially no, one person so no i think it's the other way around so vagrant vagrant has a truck factor of one which i find really odd because um, right the, there's the hashi company behind right. it so it says a high truck factor means that many individuals know enough to carry on and the project could still succeed even in very adverse events so that means that well, so I guess what is high is high well so here's the thing in <laughs> the in the Linux repository the reason that number is high is because there are a lot of contributors even though that's his that's the Torvalds Linux he pulls in code from a lot of people so that's why the truck factor is very high and oh, actually uh, and that would explain homebrew as well because while one person runs the core of homebrew he's pulling in pull requests from all the people who are doing like the builds for like every yes. other thing so yes and that but so it's interesting to me though that chef and puppet are four and six respectively it's got, and rails is seven has seven, a truck factor of seven git has a truck factor of eight so that's just kind of fascinating and i, I don't know I, I feel like the truck factor needs some work because i mean this 
Yeah, I mean, Chef would be an interesting one just because, yeah. like, there's definitely, I mean, I could see why they could pull it because for the first, what do you, we think, like, maybe two or three years, there was a, definitely a smaller concentration of people. Obviously, now it's much more massive. There's so many people with commitment to the Chef Repo, but, and I'm assuming Puppet would be the same way. There was probably, like, a good solid number of years that it almost, like, throws it out of balance when you have so many commits by a small number of people, and then you have, like, right, a but re- That's the thing, but so remember, it's, it, it's not just number of people, it's the number of people that remain after you get rid of the files that would be orphaned, right? So the point being that you might have a core that has is developed by only two or three people, but has a lot of submissions. This, the way this metric is calculated, is going to weed that out. So, we, Yusuf, I, I think that's a good point that you make that maybe the methodology that is used would be up for discussion. But if you just assume that that methodology of calculating it is good, which maybe it's not, then I think you see some interesting patterns. Vagrant has a truck factor of one. Did you mention that? I did, yeah. And yeah. I, like I said, I found that rather odd because there's a, there's a whole company in HashiCorp. WordPress uh, has a truck factor of two. <laughs> mm. Anyway, we'll link to it. We'd be curious. Uh, I'd be curious to hear from listeners on whether they think this is a valid metric or not. Speaking of that, actually, uh, speaking of truck factors and project health, uh, we'll link to a story talking about the core infrastructure initiative and its census project. It's a project to actually look, uh, and this was sort of in the wake of Heartbleed and the Open SSL problems and also and, and they they make note of NTP the NTP client and at GNU uh, PG as well uh, GPG projects that we all use that may be ripe for investment and would be problematic if they had further problems. Pete, this seems like something right up your alley. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I think it should be up everyone's alley. You know, when I, I looked through this and, you know, I actually got sad because uh, if you really think of all the companies that leverage these tools for pretty much everything they're doing, you know, so many different things. When we think about contributing back to open source, we often think about contributing time to for development work and like personal time for development work, company time for development work, or maybe personal company time for documentation or, or kind of community stuff. But honestly, what I think a lot of these projects need is just legitimately money to support the people who are not actually working at jobs. I think, what was it, uh, maybe a year ago or six months ago, the creator of, or, or the maintainer, I guess, maybe of the GPG, you know, GP, PGP, whatever it is, you know, he was basically getting by with like 20 or $30,000 a year and it was his full time job. And yeah. an article like went viral, you know, all these companies came out and were like, oh my, you know, my God, we're like, you know, Facebook gave him like a hundred grand money was coming from all these different places. So what's cool is I think you're seeing a little bit more now companies giving money to the open source projects. I think what I just see recently, like Microsoft is now like, I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. OpenBSD, which let's be honest, who ever thought they would live to see the day that Microsoft would basically be the the most like the biggest contributor to open BSD from a money standpoint. Like, yes. Now, interesting amazing. point though. Do you know why they gave that money? What what the main reason they did that? No, no. It I'm was curious. actually it was Open SSH on Windows. But <laughs> since Open SSH is part of Open BSD and the core developers are kind of over a lot of overlap there, they just gave it to the project, uh, which I I think is totally great. But it's just funny that it's like they wanted to do full native correct open SSH support on Windows because that's kind of the gold standard and people don't want to use some, you know, SSH client that is not audited on their Windows stuff. So, yeah, I think there's uh, if you look at the census results and go through and see the risk level, the risk index for some of these ones. I mean, these are like a who's who of classic Linux utilities that we use every day. I mean, you've got at Netcat, Traceroute, 
yeah, hosting. Yeah. Well, that was of, like really core libraries too that are like incredibly important. I mean, you know, the one I heard recently that blew me away was all of the because OpenBSD was looking at rewriting and and you know, God, the OpenBSD people are the developers often they get they have this uh, reputation of being sort of you know Theodor Roth's kind of an and, and uh, you know, uh, they're kind of paranoid and stuff. But what I find interesting is that I was reading a thing about where they wanted to re-implement the file command, you know, the tool that tells you what type of file things are. You know, you can type file, blah, blah, blah PDF, and it'll say this is a PDF file, right? They wanted to re-implement it because the number of exploits that had been available in the file command, the, if you ran file, you'd be owned. It's like, <laughs> what? To the, your point, Yusuf, I think it's very interesting. Uh, section B of this PDF report talks about methods for evaluating open source projects, and they list eight of them. My favorite one being called the Doom to Fail Index. Maybe that might be a more accurate sort of bus slash truck factor, looking at some of those. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Thematically, in the security space, uh, we'll link to a story about default SSH keys found in many Cisco security appliances. Again, Pete, would you like to do some... Uh, For shame. Cisco shaming. Shame. I mean, let's be honest. Are we surprised at any of this anymore? I mean, I... I I don't know if we'll, I mean, I don't think we'll ever find out how or why this happened, but we've all been doing software for a long time. Like you can kind of play the story out in your head. Someone did something at one point that you, that they thought like, let me just test this real quick. Like that's, that's what was said. Let me just test this real quick. And like X years later, you know, the same SDK is used everywhere. <laughs> well, so I will point out, it's interesting to note that the researcher who I guess d- did the work on this at Rapid7, which is where uh, EJ works. I think it's funny that there's par- apparently a library of known bad SSH keys that is now like part of the exploit tools. It's just, it'll go through all the bad SSH yeah, keys. Yeah, absolutely. Out. Metasploit. You know, um, I mean, I'm a big fan of Metasploit, and I've used it uh, many years ago when I used to do, you know, network whatever security testing for customers and stuff. And yeah, I mean, that was always like the thing. You know, it's like, oh, we got some Cisco in here. It's like, I know which things I'm going to check first. Like, yeah, and I just it's just comical. Why? It's why, it seems like nobody cares. Why? Why do people not care, Pete? They should um, care. I think they only care about things. I mean, from a business perspective. They, it's, it's clearly shown that companies don't care about the ramifications of these things um, because there, there are none, right? I mean, your CIO is going to get fired, okay? He's going to roll into some other company. You know, maybe if you're a public company, your stock takes a little bit of a hit. That'll recover. So it's like, what's the point? Like, why invest any money in it? Because the ramifications are so low that it's it's like spend a million on preventive or spend 500000 on cleaning up the mess after. Like, I, I don't I think there's anyone that would spend a million because, you know, why bother? We're gonna have to, I think we're going to have to have a show about this. This is a... <laughs> A broader topic, and it's making me angry. So, oh, this is my life. <laughs> I know, I know. On that note, we'll link to this. Uh, speaking of security sadness, VNC Roulette. It's kind of funny. Uh, it's a Reddit post. Not much there. If you actually click the link, it leads you to a page on some coding dot something coding dot io coding with a k. That's a VM provider, and that VM is shut down. But it was basically a tool that would go a search on the open internet for the RFB auth disabled string and then at random connect your browser directly to it and you would be it was called that's why it was called VNC roulette 
Um, I definitely did not use this ever. Um, I never once clicked that link and I definitely never got connected to what could have been a water treatment plant or something. I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm just saying like this never, happened. that never happened. Okay. Yeah. This is like that picture. Uh, it just reminds me of that picture. Uh, is it Josh Corman has it in his security posts where somebody had the RSA key fobs with a webcam on them? <laughs> yeah. And, and it was because it was in the data center. So to get VPN, they would go to the, they would get, load up the, the unencrypted go to like, open, and they would, and, well, they would get the RSA key token off of the webcam and, and put it into the VPN client. Yeah, that was actually, actually, that was the one I did that I put that. Oh, did you do that? That was at, you? Okay. The, at the DevOps days. I don't remember where I saw that link. It was oh. on, it was actually an older picture from a while ago, but it's basically a, a, a VNC screenshot of a box of, RSA key fobs and essentially like the joke was is the, the only bit of security on you know for that two-factor stuff is like that that the IP address isn't a public IP address like that's the only security on it it's like not a public IP <laughs> good great yes well uh, it's interesting we'll, we'll note this briefly the New York Stock Exchange and Yusuf you pointed us at this they shut down they said software glitch but that day a lot of stuff kind of yeah, shut down I don't know that I buy that glitch no, I don't, um, somebody I don't Somebody had VNC just open with no files. <laughs> right? Well, they shut it down for like five hours, and I mean, I, that's I don't know how much, how many millions of dollars were lost, but that's not something. That's not something you attribute to a software glitch. Yeah, well, to your to your point, Pete, that's why you care. But apparently, you know, we're horrible at risk analysis, so right, right, yeah. So they actually did a postmortem on that, and uh, I know we've got the link in the list as well. Yeah, um, this came, this came out a little bit after, and so of course, like when I saw this happen, like everyone else, it was like United went down, this went down, all these other things went down, and immediately everyone was like, nope. China, China's hacking us, like whatever, cyber warfare right. or something or other. But let's be honest, again, we've all been doing this for a long time. Is It's like, was it Occam's Razor? The most likely, you know, reason, like the most likely thing is whatever the reason. I'm totally destroying what that actually is, but. The simplest explanation is the most likely? There you go. So, you know, the simplest explanation is that like, we all suck at software. Like, that's the simple solution. Like, we're all terrible at it. The great yeah, thing but is, we, is. Yeah, but we all suck at security too. So I, I actually wouldn't. Well, be, I think a lot of people said, oh, it's cyber warfare. I would, I could easily see it's like script kitties in Eastern Europe, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be cyber warfare. It can just as easily be somebody like I can make, you know, a lot of money or I'm a angry teenager and I just want to screw with the world. So, yeah, I think uh, what was interesting, though, is so reading the postmortem right in the first sentence, they talk about, you know, kind of the reason why they were they were doing an upgrade the night before. And it was and this is how I actually know guaranteed it had to be a, a, just a normal software issue is that they were basically preparing for an industry test of the upcoming SIP timestamp requirement. So I was like, oh, timestamps? Yeah, those are terrible. That's <laughs> it's the leap second. Woo! <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I would love to get, you know, buy a beer for one of the NYSC, you know, operations, you know, technical people, because I've been in stressful situations and outages, I'm sure we all have. And I mean, imagine a software release has been pushed out that does not work. And the market is about to open, you know, like what, what do you do, you know? <laughs> and then you go on like Wall Street screaming down and knock, you know, sort yeah. of. This makes me. Enough. This makes me want to go watch Wall Street with a very young Charlie Sheen tonight. <laughs> All right, movie. we will be back talking community management, community managers, and the kind of stuff that they need to deal with in their environments. Uh, next up on Shit Show.
Welcome back to The Ship Show. So for episode 57, we are here with a number of community managers. We're going to talk about community management. And joining us today are uh, Matt Attaway from Portforce Software, Jason Han from VictorOps, and Mary Thingval, uh, chef. And if that name is familiar, uh, she also did community management uh, at O'Reilly and was a big part of the Velocity conferences for a long time. And they're all community managers now. Welcome to The Ship Show, all. Thanks for having me. Hey, yeah, excited to be on the show. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. So first of all, I think a lot of people may have heard the term community management, but may not be familiar with all that that entails. So why don't we start there? What what does a community manager do? Probably different than a, than a line manager, <laughs> the manager we all kind of report to when we think about it. I kind of see it as the person who's responsible or at least takes the lead for the care and feeding of everyone who uses your software or tooling. You know, there's a whole bunch of human beings out there who have needs and wants and, and thoughts. And, it and can feels. Be, and feels, exactly. And getting that all into the corporate monsters that we work for who are loving corporate monsters can be hard. So it's, it's you know, this, this face that people can put a, or I guess a face for the company that people can interact with and, at a human level. I think it depends on who you ask. I also think it depends on what your job description is at whatever company or corporation you work for. There's a lot of times when I'll say, you know, I'm a community manager, community builder, and someone will immediately reply, oh, you handle all the social media. <laughs> and I think that's become a common misperception. That's obviously part of it is to, you know, keep an eye on what's going on online and where people are talking about you and what they're saying. But I think it's also, like Matt was saying, it's being the face of your company in your community. I think there's a varying degree of technical skills uh, along with that. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's a speaking role and you're in the code day in and day out and you know what's going on and you're talking about it at different conferences and sometimes it's more of a you start the conversations and then hand them off once they get to a different technical level. But I think there's a variety of things that we can be responsible for and do. I think it depends on the company and what your goals are as well. Yeah, just to add to that, um, I would say it, it very much depends on on the company that you're with and, and what it is that you're actually trying to uh, provide in terms of where you fit in, the, in this tech industry, if we're just going to talk about tech in general. But for me, the way I look at it is really about being a facilitator or a connector. You know, so bringing those users and those those consumers of your product or your service, bringing them what they need in order for them to be successful or providing what they need in order to allow them to accomplish whatever it is that they're, they're trying to accomplish. So just sort of being that, not only that person who can make those connections, but also like Mary's saying, be the, the eyes and ears for your product team to get that feedback back to the ones who actually can make changes uh, on your service to, to make those improvements. So it, it you know it's a lot of different hats. A lot of it is just sort of being the eyes and ears and, and being able to help facilitate whatever it is your users or your customers or attendees or whatever the case is, but get them what they need. So that's interesting because I wanted to ask. I think Jason, when when we first met, I think you introduced yourself or maybe on your business card it said something about you know technical evangelist. A lot of times there's this kind of overlap between an evangelism role and a community manager role is that I mean is that pretty common or, or do you see that a lot where there's this kind of overlap it's, it's kind of like people evangelist almost yeah well for me I feel like uh, you know my, my current role is is an evangelist although I, I feel like it's moving more towards the overall community development community manager thing but it feels like a very natural progression you know the, the evangelism thing is something that we've seen within the tech space for a number of years and I believe that the reason why it's existed and why 
why it has become so big and so important is that, especially within our space, our technical people, they, they have this like finely tuned ability to sort of uh, sniff out traditional sales and marketing, and they really don't <laughs> want to have those engagements as much. You know, they'd much rather hear from more technical people or from, especially if we're talking about developer evangelism, they want to hear from those other engineers so that they really feel like they're talking to someone who speaks their language. And so I think that's why we're seeing this role of the evangelist start to become so key and so important is that typically an evangelist can speak that that language of the technical person, but they can also speak to the non-technical person. But more importantly, they can be that swing man right in the middle between sales and marketing and product who can take that message and deliver it in the most useful way. So I think the evangelist type of stuff, you know, is definitely a part of it. And at least for me, that's been the natural progression or evolution of my role here at VicDrops. Well, so it's interesting. I, I wonder if you could all talk a little bit. I mean, Jason, you kind of said community development, which I think that it sounds like that is a large part of all of your roles. But it, it's interesting that we, we talked about this episode as community management, right? Uh, what, what kind of skills do you find it necessary to have when you're doing that kind of that role of community development? Well, at least for me, a big part of it is the willingness and the ability to to engage and and be able to you know make it out to conferences, host meetups or just events in general, be involved with social media and all the different channels that come online. And I think that's you know you start with developing something and then it becomes you're actually managing that and you know managing it and building it to to grow in general. But you have to somehow create it in the first place. And that's the position that I'm finding myself in right now. At Victor Ops is that we're in a position where we want to start to grow our community. We've got a lot of great users and partners and customers who love our product, and I want to help connect them and, and let them sort of inter- interact with each other and engage with each other. But we have to start putting things in place to make that happen first, and then it's sort of more of just a management or a um, kind of facilitating things from there. So, so I, I want to ask a bit of a controversial question. What, why do we need community managers? What's the community manager's reason of being? I think that's a really great question because it's something that we wrestled with here at Perforce for a long time. About eight years ago, actually, we tried to create kind of the role I have right now. And everyone's like, we don't need to do that. We have a great relationship with our customers. And they talk to each other. And what would you be adding value-wise? But I think it ends up being really key to have one person who's really fixated on how the community as a whole is operating and how they're talking to each other and how they're talking to the company. Marketing tends to be very outbound driven. You know, they're trying to get messaging out. They're broadcasting to Twitter. They're broadcasting to these websites with ads and such. But they're not always looking at the feedback that's coming in. And you know, here we said, well, that's what our support's for. Well, we're going to take all this support or all the feedback through the support channels, and that's good enough. But there's a there's this whole other aspect of getting the community community to talk to each other. And we had this really great example of this. When I first started, we had the, what we call the forums, very cleverly named, where our users could theoretically come together. It was hooked into our mailing list, and people could come and ask the community questions. And people did. And we had, like, when I started, maybe a question or two a week. And they might get answered, they might not. And I started the community management role and said, like, hey, this thing is kind of dead. What can we do to pep this up? So I just started answering questions and engaging. 
And sure enough, over the coming six months, we saw our engagement really skyrocket to the point where our, our community is adding you know, a few members a day, which for us is pretty good, and it started getting self-sustaining. And that's something that without a community management to really sit there and look at how the community is doing, how they're feeling, if they're being, you know, I think it was Jason was talking about how they want that developer interaction. Are they getting that developer interaction, that kind of deep knowledge that they need to succeed? Having that one person to hold that problem in their head and make sure it's being solved, I think, is huge. I think it's also really important just to have who's a face of your community, a face of your company. Like Jason was saying earlier and like Matt was just saying now, you know, we, we cover a lot of different roles. It's not just social media. It's not just answering questions. It's connecting members of our community. It's connecting our community to the appropriate people at the company. It's working with our business development team to make sure that the roadmap for the company matches what people are talking about and what they're looking for and the directions that they're moving in. It's, you know, working with sales. It's working with marketing. It's touching pretty much every point in the company in order to best serve the community. So like Matt was saying, it's it's important to have someone whose main goal and, and their foundation is supporting the community and being there for the community because that's going to determine their focus. That's going to determine what their decisions are based on. And as long as you have someone advocating for those things, you know that the community is going to be heard and is going to be listened to and that their viewpoint is going to be taken into account. And I think especially for open source companies, that's a huge thing to take into consideration because it's important to know, you know, what what people are wanting and what they're doing. And granted, as an open source company like Chef is, you know, people can go in and, and make those changes and facilitate the things that they want on their own. But if we're not supporting them as a company, then we're not truly engaging with our community and, and acknowledging the importance of what they're doing as well. Uh, for me, another way to put it is that our role really is to just pay attention. You know, pay attention to what's going on all over the place with, you know, teams internally and our users and our customers and our partners and is just really being vigilant about the conversations that are that are coming in but also maybe that are taking place externally that we haven't been looped into just yet. So for example, you know, our engineers are, are heads down banging out new features all the time. Our marketing team is is doing, you know, something similar as well around our messaging and, and new campaigns. They're very much focused on their role, but that doesn't mean that they don't have something to say or shouldn't be a part of the conversations and the engagement. And so we have to be the one that brings those conversations to them. And I have to be the one that says, hey, you know, someone from our back-end team, would you be willing to work with this person because they've got some questions or they, I think they've got some great ideas. So just, again, sort of being that facilitator and making those connections, but you have to be the one that realizes those connections need to be made because everyone else is focused on something different. It, it sounds to me like the theme, cause sort of if I had to pick a word, to pick out the theme that you're all talking about, it sounds like the role is, is sort of a more holistic approach to engagement with customers. Many of your customers may be community members, but you may have community members that aren't customers, but it's engagement with that group of people in a more holistic way, whereas other forms of company engagement may be more targeted or, you know, you're talking marketing is more outbound. It's more directional, directional focus. Is that sort of a, a good way to describe that, that it's, it's a more holistic approach, kind of systems? We always, in DevOps, we talk a lot about systems thinking, kind of a systems thinking approach to, to uh, engagement? I think that's fair. I mean, it's it's about relationship building. 
to go to Yusuf's question, you know, what's why are community managers important? I think the bigger question is why is community important? And you know, if all those people are using your tool, whether they're paid or unpaid, if they're happy and they like where your tool is going and they feel like they're heard, they're going to give you feedback so you can take that work into your product. They're going to advocate for you out in the market. No one's ever advocated because of a Twitter banner ad. No one's ever gone, man, I feel so good about that Twitter GIF. In fact, quite the opposite. (laughs) Oh, man, do we get hate tweets about that? Uh, (laughs) So I I think our job is to go out and build relationships, which is hard because relationships are really hard to manage, which I think is, I don't know if the rest, Mary and Jason agree, it's one of the hardest things about I found about the job is trying to measure when we're successful. (laughs) Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, man. But I think we could do an entire podcast on just different methods or whether it can be done actually at all on on measurement, uh, especially when it comes to return on investment for this type of role. Yeah, metrics metrics are probably the most difficult part of this job. And the hard thing about it is that traditionally, anytime you want headcount, anytime you need more help, the way that you prove that to upper management is metrics and data. And so many metrics around community management are quote unquote squishy and aren't you know traditional metrics I, I want to talk about metrics in a second because I think that's a, a very interesting point but I did want to ask Mary I mentioned in the intro that you also did community management at O'Reilly and I'm curious if you know O'Reilly obviously very tech focused company a tech focused community but it's not a traditional product company in the way that Chef or Victor Ops or Perforce is I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about some of the differences between playing a community manager or a management role with an organization like O'Reilly versus a chef or a Victor Ops or a Perforce? Sure. My background at O'Reilly, I was in the PR and marketing department for about six years Mm -hmm. and started running into a lot of issues where I felt like we were talking at our customers and talking at our community, but not really talking with them because we didn't have any truly viable ways of getting their feedback. And the times that we got the most feedback was, you know, if we had a booth at a conference or something like that and we had a chance to actually sit and talk to people. And our editors were on the road, but as our editors got more and more busy with various projects and various books, we didn't really have someone who was constantly getting back from the community. And so we'd get bits and pieces of things of this topic is really hot or these things really need to be talked about or people are looking for uh, resources around this new programming language. But there was never anyone to really follow up on those and see how much interest there actually was and what the hot new things were and what things were going on. And so uh, I actually went to the management at O'Reilly and said, hey, what if we started a role around this? And I took one of our focus areas and tried to connect with the people in that community and tried to connect with both the leaders and some of the people who are getting to know that area and spend some time talking to them about what they're interested in and what's, what's on the horizon for them, what projects they're working on, what they're interested in with their work, what they were interested in with personally, um, and see if we can get some feedback on the directions that we should be moving as a company. And I think the main difference with O'Reilly versus Chef is that while I was still focusing on a particular area, it was still much more broad. So I, I focused on our velocity division, which is web performance and web ops. 
but there's a lot of topics within that. And one of the major differences for me switching over to chef was that I went from having a broad knowledge and a broad foundation to work from to I need to know this one topic very well. And Top that's bottom, right. It sounds to me though that that's an interesting point. I mean if, if you buy the assertion that O'Reilly, their product really is information, they're kind of more of an information company than, than a product company per se. It's interesting that you were saying that the value that that role brought was development of an exploration of what the community thought was important from an information perspective, what what they were wanting to learn more about, and that's where that role was really valuable. Is was that yeah. Yeah, how that yeah? Well, so you brought up metrics. Let's talk a little bit about metrics and why that is difficult in this space. What are some of the metrics that you tend to look at when we're talking about something like engagement? I mean, is it is it number of tweets? Is it things like that? What? I've played around with quite a few different metrics, and it, it's not hard to to. Get gather that data and even analyze it, but to really tie it back to, to any dollar amount or anything like that is, is probably one of the bigger challenges that most upper management really wants to see tied together. Of course, you can measure how many, you know, what's your engagement on Twitter and what's your reach, uh, what's your clout score, things things like that that almost sounds silly, but uh, I think, uh, you know, once you start developing a, or putting in place platforms or, or different uh, almost tools that facilitate that, um, that engagement, you can start to see things like, you know, how many users are we getting per month in our forums? Or, or if we're using Reddit, how many new posts are we having? And how, you know, what are the ones that are getting the most plus ones and making it to the top? Because those are those are important subjects that we maybe need to address or, or focus on. So there's lots of different ways to approach it, but I don't know that there's a silver bullet because, again, it's just going to depend on, on your overall goals of the company and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and in addition to the overall goals and what we're, what we're looking for, it's also the problem of a lot of those numbers numbers change a lot and change often you know don't always know how to define them so one of the numbers we've been looking at is meetup numbers and meetup groups but once you start digging into that you know it's not as easy as finding okay you know x number of meetups in this area talk about devops and they you know speak about chef every other month because you can't just say there's 165 meetups that are tagged devops in the san francisco area you have to then dig into that and say okay 70 of those are active, but then how do we define what active is? And even if we can figure out how many of those are active, then how do we say, you know, well, they've got this many members because you can't just add up the 70 different groups and say there's X number of people involved in the meetup scene in San Francisco because three quarters of those people could be involved in almost all 70 of the groups. And then you you know start digging into well meetup attendees, but then that changes because not everyone who RSVPs actually attends. Yeah, and then you got people like me who screw that number up because I'm a member of meetups across the country. Exactly, as am I. <laughs> well, so it's it's funny because it seems like I think a lot of times for meetups and events like that, people will post you know wherever and they will say oh you know there's there's going to be and I, I can remember I mean I, I was uh, president of SVLUG, the Silicon Valley Linux Users Group way back in the day, and I think a lot of people they go to those meetups and they're like, oh, you know, this event is going to have pizza sponsored by so-and-so and we've got some books to raffle off and all that that sort of thing. And there's a lot of times just this assumption, but it sounds like what you're saying is there's actually a lot, that's a hard proposition. There's a lot of kind of math and research that goes into it. It's, it's Pizza's not free. You know, swag is not free. I think we're kind of used to, especially if you do a lot of conferences, this perception that it just shows up. And it sounds like there's more research that goes into that. Definitely. No, there's a lot of work that goes into figuring out where the 
folks who will love you the most are going to be here. Or you know, a lot of times you're trying to find, at least for us, we're trying to find places where people haven't heard of us. It, it's certainly great to go talk to people who know about you already, and, and you need those kind of emotional boosts, like, yeah, we're still important. People love us. But you're trying to figure out you know, where you can have a, a, an impact. So, yeah, no, it, it's quite a bit of work to, to suss out. Well, so let me ask that. How do you decide how to segment up your time? And Mary, I'd be curious about this. Mary and Jason, of course, do. But I mean, like, Chef is one of those things where, and Victor Ops as well, have grown so much in Mindshare. We've seen those products at conferences and things. How do you decide where to break down your time between new community engagement, trying to bring people into the community, versus sustaining the community that you already have and that you have built, that you spend a bunch of effort building? How do you, is it an intuitive thing? Do you kind of try to measure that? How, how does that work? That's actually something we're trying to tackle right now, especially with a company like Chef, where we grew as quickly as we did because of Groundswell, because of people hearing about us at events, because of people hearing about us from their friends, because of someone trying it out at home on their own and then coming to their company and saying, hey, we need to we need to use this company-wide. It's the constant struggle of we want to make sure that we're maintaining the areas that we're really strong in, as well as fostering the cities that we have potential in but aren't quite as strong in yet. And then also sussing out where the green fields are to go there and start from scratch and see what works and see what doesn't. And so that's been a constant struggle for us. And going back to Schwag for a second, I mean, one of the things that we realized that I don't think a lot of us are as aware of is that most of us who are on this call have the privilege of attending a lot of conferences and a lot of events. And yet there's a lot of companies out there that don't have the money to send their employees to events and don't have the money to or don't have the time and team members to send their people to several day long events. And so, you know, one of the things we've been struggling with is also how do we reach the people who don't get to go to events and who might not have meetups in their area. And so trying to dig into some of those cities where we know there isn't a meetup presence and find the one or two people that are there and say, hey, would you be willing to help us start a DevOps meetup or a chef meetup in this area? We're willing to help you with sponsorship money and finding a place to locate it and all those things, but really digging in and figuring out where the places are that we don't have a presence as well as maintaining the ones that we do. That seems like a chicken and egg problem, it would sound like, because you might have you know, a community that oh, there's only the visibility of the tech people in just from a tech community perspective perspective that might be a potential chef or Victor Ops or Perforce community. It's it's like, how do you get it started if you can't find them? But how do you find them if there's not, you know, it's it's this weird. Well, so Paul, a lot of it's just, you know, some of it's going to be intuitive. Some of it's going to be based on expertise and things that you've learned, but you're really just simply kind of applying the, the OODA loop model of, you know, let's try something out. Let's see what, let's kind of do the observation and the orientation and then decide what do we want to try and, and then kind of measure that. And then let's go from there. And if that works, let's keep doing it. If it didn't, let's try something different you know we we notice just based on traffic and the different metrics we see on our website that DevOps days are huge for us and that's why I have been to every single DevOps days in North America this year because it's it's showing that there are results from that uh, the same goes with you know that book that I put out that chat ops book was a total hunch and it's paying off in huge rewards right now so you know so we'll we're gonna keep I'm gonna have to stand on the gas with the whole chat ops thing even though I'm a little bit tired of talking about it but you just sort of, <laughs> you just sort of you know you try 
try something and then you, you measure it, and if it works, you take that feedback and you, and you run with it. If it didn't work, then you, you switch gears and you try something else. Yeah, we, we engage a lot on Twitter because I find it's a great way to meet people across the world, and everyone's used to the asynchronous conversation that happens there. So, you know, when looking for those advocates, those people who, you know, might be willing to start a user group up or do a larger gathering, it lets you build those relationships all over the world fairly easily. It's been very successful for us. I think part of it, too, I mean, it's it's the OODA loop, but it's also recognizing that what works in some cities may not work in others. So one of the things that, that we've been noticing as we've been expanding into Europe more is, you know, the culture there is very different. And so some things work and some things don't. And there might be something that we tried before in the States that failed miserably that might be worthwhile trying again somewhere else or that failed in San Francisco that might be worth trying in Austin or Every every city is different, and as much as we like to think that you know, well, it's it's all the same community. It's really not, and so it's it's a chicken and egg from the perspective of finding the community members and figuring out where our strengths are, as well as figuring out what's going to be the best approach to reach to reach those community members we're trying to reach out to. Well, I did want to ask something, Jason. You brought up something very interesting about that DevOps days has been a real integral part of where you found success from a community management perspective. And of course, uh, I've seen both Chef and Perforce at various DevOps Days events. I'm curious, and you know, maybe we should have started with this because I think a lot of people listening might have this question. It's like, what is it about DevOps that makes community management or, or community engagement in the way that we're talking about it different than kind of traditionally software had community engagement or important? I mean, how does that even tie in into the sort of DevOps community as it were? Yeah, well, I think most of it is right at the heart of DevOps is the whole empathy thing. You know, you, you're not going to get through a, a DevOps Days event anywhere in the world and not hear that term used over and over again, and it's because that really is the heart of what DevOps means. It's, you know, about understanding the struggles and the jobs and the relationships of more than just your own little silo and your own little responsibility. And you, you mentioned earlier about having a holistic or process-driven approach, and I think that's important, but also, at least within our industry and in the community, communities that we work in, people want to be able to put a face to a person. You know, if you think about like customer support or engagement with some big enterprise company like Comcast, you might have a pleasant exchange with someone, but as soon as that exchange is over, it's it's done. And whereas sort of what we're trying to do is build a longer term, long lasting relationship. And so I want them to understand VictorOps, but they I want them to understand me as a person and as a as a again a resource as well. And so building those relationships I think are super important and the only way you can truly build a strong relationship is to really empathize with someone and understand their struggles and know that you know you want to be able to help them and they can trust that you you know do have that sort of genuine drive to help them and if you can't help them you can at least connect them with someone who can help them so empathy I think is where that really comes out of yeah I think Jason's dead on there community management is about communication uh, and folks in the DevOps community tend to be empathetic people who are into communication and want to talk about their problems and share their issues and share solutions so I think there's just a natural bias where community management works well from a marketing standpoint to work with the DevOps community. I completely agree with that and just to add on to that a little bit it's I mean that's one of my favorite parts about this job and it's also one of the hardest parts. A big part of the reason why I got into community management and started kind of creating that role for myself is because I love 
love the advocacy side of things. I love hearing people's stories. I love being able to help. I love being able to figure out different solutions for the problems that they're running into. But at the same time, I was having this conversation with a colleague last Friday that, you know, our jobs are incredibly personal. And we have very personal conversations. And that's a good thing and a bad thing in that it's extremely draining. And it's those of us who are in these types of roles tend to be in these roles because it's something we do both in our personal lives and in our public lives or our professional lives, if you will. It's something that we, we do it because we're good at it and because we love to, but it's, it's also one of those things that we have to kind of keep an eye on each other for is how much we're giving and making sure that we're getting energy back from places at the same time. So it sounds like burnout is an issue. We talk a lot about in DevOps. It's been a topic of discussion a lot recently in the last six months. It sounds like that's uh, something you have to worry about in this role as well. It absolutely is. In this role, that much more so because of the the level of engagement that we have. Um, but I mean, I, I don't know a community manager who hasn't burned out at some point. <laughs> so true. So that's really interesting. I wanted to key into something you said, Jason. You, you said, I, I want people to, you know, engage with VictorOps and the product, but I also, you said, I also want them to understand me. And it was funny, I was thinking about this. I mean, I, I've had interactions with all of you, and I was I was thinking about, you know, it, it seems like it, there's some aspect of almost, it sounds like, a mixing of a personal and professional branding of some sorts. And, and what I was going to say is, you know, I've interacted with all of you. I know, Jason, you've talked about moving out to Colorado, and and I grew up in Colorado, so we talked about that. We talked about how you you moved out because you were in a band, and and so it's like you know I know you from that aspect. I think Mary sometimes people what was what did you say? It's like oh Mary's the one with a dog, right? With Ember, <laughs> uh, right? I, yeah, we each have our ways of being known, right? Yeah, and Matt, I know you and I have had a number of interesting conversations on Twitter back and forth for a, a number of years now. So it it's it seems like maybe part of the reason that is often draining is because a lot of times you are out and about, but to do community management or engagement right, can't really fake that. Exactly. You, you either have to be out there and genuine and honest, and then I think that's why people respond to community management as, at the end of the day, it's all a marketing tactic, right? We're, we're trying to make sure these folks are, are happy with the products we're building, but it's why they respond, because it's, it's genuine. It, it's not that Twitter banner ad that's trying to manipulate you, or some sort of FUD-based article that's trying to get you to do something. It's, it's a real human being who really hopefully cares about you, and they care about the product they're building, and they're, they care about making that all work. And that being caring all the time is hard. It's great. Empathy is hard. hard. Empathy is hard. Well, on the, the flip side of that, I mean, you mentioned like our there's a very fine line between our personal lives and our professional lives and i think part of that comes from so many of us are on the road so often that building a community at home is hard because building a community means you have to be there and when we're building one professionally you know unless you've unless you've already got a really tight knit community at home and unless you've got friends who are willing to keep pinging you until you know that one week of the month that you're finally home you can actually say yes and go to the event that they're talking about 
it's a lot of us, you know, our communities end up being the people that we see on the road. And so I can say personally, there isn't a huge line between my personal life and my professional life because some of my closest friends are the people that I see on the road. And that's, that's also one of those really good things. And it becomes a hard thing at times too. I resemble that remark. Um. <laughs> I'm trying to circle one thing there. It's going back to what Mary was talking about, the challenges of international, you know, working with these different cultures, that, that also definitely shows up in the community management because your community is awake 24 hours a day and it, it can be really hard to walk away and you know walk away from the forums or social media or however it is you engage with your community or when you're on the road and want to just want to go back to bed and not uh, go out to talk to your users some more. It's being able to disconnect can be really challenging, I think, in this role. Yeah, personally, I feel like that that's actually one of the hardest things to do yeah, because there is such a blend of personal and professional. You know, even just in our tech industry in general, we're sort of, we tend to lean towards just always on always available, always willing to engage. And regardless to if you identify yourself as an introvert who needs sort of that alone time to actually recharge, it's, a, it's just exhausting to sort of maintain that same level of engagement consistently for an extended amount of time. So burnout, you know, I, I'm actually, I just finished up a blog post last night that I hopefully will go out uh, in the next couple of days on, on burnout within IT. Because as Paul mentioned, it has been a very important subject and something a lot of folks are talking about lately, which is important. That's the best part of the whole thing is that people are actually talking about it. And that's more specifically towards sort of our ops people within our industry. But it does apply apply to, you know, even evangelists and, and community managers and consultants and, you know, everybody on this on this call right now because we are just constantly involved with something, constantly working on something until we take that time for ourselves. I know, Paul, you've talked about all the different times you've spent with just the dog, just watching Netflix. And just <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, that's how you reset. For me, i got to get away from my phone. i got to just get off the grid for a couple of days. Things like that, I think, are super important for our little community of community managers. And one other thing, I mean, even just taking the time every day to do something for you, that is disconnected, you know, like you were saying, whether it's cuddling up with the dog and watching Netflix or, you know, something that I've been trying to do these last few days. And I've noticed somewhat of a difference already, but when I'm hanging out with other people, putting away my phone. Mm. And I think so often in this tech culture, people are used to, you know, they need an immediate response and they really don't like <laughs> nothing's going to, you know, the world's not going to end if someone waits a half hour or an hour or even a day for an answer to your question. And I think that's something that we have to force ourselves to remember sometimes is, yes, we've got communities in all different time zones and dealing with all different issues, but we need to work towards making our communities sustainable on their own and making advocates within the community that can help answer some of those questions so that we aren't forced to be on at all times. Because if we're not doing the things to take care of ourselves, then how can we be expected to take care of our community? Well, so I wanted to ask a little bit. I, I know, Mary, you were tweeting the other day from a hangout that I, I think was a, a group of community managers and, and this idea of like the community of community managers. I would love to ask the panel about that. What is the community of community managers look like? Where do where do they go to discuss different aspects of their own communities and uh, also issues they run into? There aren't very many resources for community managers. And I think part of that is that, you know, the term community manager and, and that type of idea is still relatively new. It's been happening for a few years now and in some circles for a lot longer than that. But it's not something that we've had a huge group of people come together and say, 
say, hey, we need resources for these things. So, I mean, there's a handful of books and there's Community Leadership Summit that's coming up this next weekend in Portland, but there's not a lot of resources around it um, and not a lot of places for us to connect. So we have a Slack channel that a few of us started up a few months back and that's been a huge help. Jason and I have been talking about starting a, a podcast coming up here soon for community managers as well. But it's it's interesting because for a group of people who is responsible for providing communication and providing resources for their communities, there's not a lot of resources for us. Yeah, like Mary's saying, uh, she and I are going to be starting a podcast uh, series here in the next couple of weeks. And one of the big reasons for that is because, you know, this this is something that we're passionate about and, and, and want to do with our careers, but there aren't a ton of resources. There's a lot of great books out there, uh, Art of Community by Jonah Bacon. And then, you know, like she mentioned, the Community Leadership Summit, which is coming up, is another great resource. And we've got our Slack channels, and uh, there's probably some things on Reddit, but there's not an overwhelming just fountain of resources out out there. So we're kind of hoping to, to be able to start providing some of that and uh, see what we can do to make a little bit more uh, information available. Yeah, it sounds like it's a good time to get a little meta on the topic and, and build that community of community managers. So I had some uh, questions that I wanted to ask the, uh, the panel. What does everybody enjoy the most about being a community manager? Connecting with the people. I mean, that's that's part of the reason I got into communications and why I pursued journalism for a while and all of that thing. Like, I love the I love hearing the stories. I love getting to know the people behind the products. And I also love trying to solve the problems that they're facing. I'm a huge fixer, and I, I just I love being able to listen to someone's story and then go back and, and do what I can to make their job easier or their life easier or even just provide that listening ear for a little while. Yeah, that's pretty much the same for me. I Before I actually was doing community management as a job, I hopped on Twitter and started just talking to users because they're fun. There are lots of interesting people out there and they use our tooling in interesting ways and it's fun to hear their war stories, either about their product or just their jobs. I love computers. I've been programming for years and years now, but they aren't very fun to talk to. They're not terribly sympathetic. <laughs> they are not great to share a beer with. They're not uh, empathetic either. <laughs> no. Computers so, are terrible. I mean, it's interesting. So our support organization, it's one of the questions that I ask people when I interview them. It's not like, why do you want to do support? Because most of them are software developers by trade. Like, I just need to talk to people. And so I think for folks who trend towards community management, just having a job where you get paid to talk to interesting people all day is pretty satisfying. Yeah, and for me, you know, it's it's all those same reasons. But on top of that, it's a new challenge. You know, my entire professional career, I've been more of an ops guy who can do a little bit of coding on the side. And, you know, as soon as I took on the evangelism job at Victor Ops, it was a completely new challenge. I've loved every minute of it. And like I said earlier, I think this is just the evolution of that. But with that evolution comes a new set of challenges. Challenges. And for me, I guess I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm just a sponge taking in information and, and resources from all different areas and then seeing what I can do with that. This is a new way for me to do that, but not in a overly selfish way. It is really satisfying when you link two things that are disparate that no one else could have seen the connection to because either they're internal and external or there's just external people who would never have crossed paths and you link them up and something magical happens and that is super satisfying. Part of what Jason was saying about the challenge, I mean, this day and age in tech, things are changing so quickly that like it's funny to me when someone asks me what a typical day looks like for me because there isn't a typical day. 
every day is different. Some days I'm on the road, some days I'm not, but there is no typical day and there is no typical job description for what we do. And I think that's part of the reason why I love it so much is that it's constantly changing and it's constantly new things. I'm always learning something new, whether it be tech or about people or about events or what have you, but it never gets old, that's for sure. So what's something about the role that very few people know about that uh, all of you would like them to know? specifically about community management? I think the, the biggest thing is just for people to realize that it is an emotional train, circling back on that. It's, it doesn't look like it on the outside because a lot of people who trend towards the role are either pretty extroverted or pretty positive all the time, but I, I guess it's the nature of any job that involves interacting with people day in and day out, you know, doctors and all that as well. But the, the emotional toll is huge, and, and you know, yeah, getting yeah. into it, make sure you care for yourself. Yeah, and I think to sort of add to that, at least for me, for better or worse, I, I feel like I'm a people pleaser, and I think it's important to know that whether or not you identify yourself as a people pleaser, your community are kind of hoping that you will be, uh, <laughs> because that's what they're coming to you for. They, they see you as a resource. And so if you're not able to, for whatever reason, um, maintain that that ability to sort of stay engaged, that's going to be tough. Such a good point. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds like that would be an example where burnout is even more detrimental in this role, just because of what, what you said. People have an expectation of the role, and if you're burnout and kind of snapping at everyone because of that, which uh, I've certainly been there in a, in a technical role, it would be even worse from a community management perspective. That's why we have beer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll echo what both of them just said. It's a drain and it's a long day. I think the other thing, and this is a comment that I get a lot from people both in the tech space and not, that, and I, I know there's other people who travel a lot who can relate to this too, but we're on the road a lot and that's a lot of fun and we get to be at a lot of really cool events, but being on the road and traveling as much as we do means we know a lot of really cool or really not cool conference centers and hotels around the world. Um, <laughs> not that we know the cities around the world, which is always a fun conversation when people are starting to tell us about all the places I've been. Oh, you get to go to San Francisco. Well, actually, it's Santa Clara, and you're like, oh, what's Santa Clara? You're like, is is uh. exactly exactly. <laughs> I, I used I used to live in Mountain View. I can say that I love Santa Clara. <laughs> Ish. I wanted to ask kind of to that point, I know it's kind of a delicate topic, but I think it's important. I'm curious if you can speak a little bit to what one of the hardest aspects or situations from a community management perspective you had to deal with and what sort of skills you had to draw on or sort of develop that was a result of that event. I think a lot of times, you know, when we talk about community, there's oftentimes drama in any community because, as we were saying earlier, people have thoughts and feels, and it's oftentimes the feels that become, you know, loaded with a lot of emotion, a lot of energy. I would love to hear from the panel on that. Uh, what was the situation, and, and what, uh, you know, how did you work to resolve it? Well, I can't really think of a, a lot of great examples, but I, I will maybe uh, illustrate one sort of recent thing. And it, this is something I think anyone in this role, whether you're a social media manager, an evangelist, an advocate, or community manager, there's conversations being had about you and your service or your brand or whatever online. And and like I mentioned earlier, I think one responsibility 
of community managers to pay attention to those conversations. But we have this tendency to, to get defensive if someone's saying something nasty about whatever, you know, your brand or your service. I think you have to, you almost have to be able to then somehow reach back in the closet and find this PR hat to put on and make sure that you're responding or somehow introducing yourself into that conversation, but not in a defensive way and, in, and certainly not in a way that actually is detrimental rather than uh, helpful to being part of that conversation. I think that's one of the biggest things is trying to figure out how to navigate delicate situations, whether it's someone who's frustrated with the decision that you've made with your product or someone who doesn't feel like they're being treated right by the rest of the community or who is simply frustrated by the amount of time that they feel like they're having to put in, even if it is their choice, but the amount of time that they're choosing to or feel like they have to put into improving your product and they feel like they're not getting the support that they need. And it's, you know, those conversations are hard because those people more often than not are a valuable part of your community and you don't want to turn them off to your community or turn them off to your product but managing a lot of different people's opinions along with being respectful of the work that they do and the fact that they do contribute both to your community as a whole and to your product is difficult sometimes. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge I've had in recent memory was every once in a while you'll see someone, especially if we do a lot of social media engagement, and they're clearly in pain and you want to help them and they just keep telling you to die in a fire. And, you know... Ouch. Yeah, and in various ways. I mean, the case I'm thinking of in particular, he was very um, colorful in how the multiple ways that we should all die. Uh, this uh, is, uh, yeah, yeah, this reminds me of all the ways the Linus Torvalds has told people to go f*** themselves um, repeatedly. Right. It's, you know. Right. For some reason, open source communities tend to be really good at insults, it, it, which is weird and sad, but yeah. The, you know, the challenge is a lot of times when you have those kind of engagements, you can walk away. You're just like, yep. You know, I'm sorry, you know, we're here to listen anytime. This particular individual decided to chase us down online to, to continue to tell us uh, how to die. Um, <laughs> so, you know, dealing with those types of folks, is, you know, they're, they're passionate people, and online does not always bring out the best in folks, as the, uh, the internet theory states. So That's trying true. to stay calm in those moments and trying to, trying to still move the conversation forward. And eventually we actually did. It, it, it took a week. But we actually were able to get to the point where we could find out what was wrong and help. Maybe that's time where you uh, employed the beer and hope yes. that that helps. To that point, I wanted to ask, I think a lot of times companies, organizations that see a community and see uh, the result of all of the work that people like you are all doing in terms of engaging and, and fostering that community, they're like, I want one of those. I, you know, I want to build a community. And they think, well, we'll maybe make that someone's part-time role or even maybe hire someone. What advice or information would you give organizations that think, well, this is going to be awesome. This is just another way to create engagement and, and with our product and get people to buy our product. What would you say to, to that sort of cursory examination of what it's like to foster a community? I'll say, I mean, much like many roles, you can't just throw a person at a problem and try to solve it. So if you feel like you have a problem, maybe that's not the best place to start. If you feel like you have an opportunity, and I know there's a you know fine line between the two, then, you know, with if you go about it smart, I think this type of role makes perfect sense. Based on my recent expertise, or maybe not expertise, but just sort of situation here at VictorOps, uh, for us anyway, it made more sense to have someone who was more of an uh, more of an evangelist, at least speaking in terms of you know not specifics in terms of. Let me back up. So like with VictorOps, you could build a community around just 
you know, the APIs and, and things like that that you can do with VictorOps. But then my role actually started off as more of a DevOps evangelist. So it wasn't so specific to tooling and building things on top of VictorOps or through VictorOps, but actually being out there and just advocating for best practices within DevOps and incident management specifically. So if you can have, if you want to have somebody who can kind of play that role where they sort of dip their toe into that space, I can say at least personally that's worked really well for us. But outside of that, I'm not sure. It feels like, I mean, if you're going to get started as a company and you're like, we've got to get, get us some community management, starting with someone who is kind of naturally part of the community already. So that could be a developer if you make a developer-oriented product or someone who does ops or is a member of the DevOps community for a DevOps tool. Just so that from day one they can go out and speak the language and be that authentic face, I think is huge. I mean, for my point of view, I feel like when you're looking to get started, looking to get more than one person involved in the community management is important. So, you know, certainly having that one person who's thinking all the time about it is great. But when we started to really do this, we tried to pull our developers into it, the ones who were kind of socially oriented and needed that escape anyway, to go out and talk in different forums with the user base so that they build those relationships and get started. Well, so, and, and different personalities are going to interact differently, right? If you only have, like, one, one person to engage with and maybe for whatever reason, you know, it's not that you hate them, but you just kind of, you know, click with them, that right. sounds like it's important too. Yeah, certainly I think there's much to be said for, on two fronts. A, you have the, the different uh, personal APIs, so to speak. You have these different <laughs> people you can talk to. And also I think it's important. One of the things that's great about community management is reminding the world out there that companies are made of people and they have thoughts and feelings and emotions. I'm just laughing <laughs> because I'm, I'm thinking of Charlton Heston, you know, saying like, Perforce, it's made of people. There's kind of, yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of that, I gotta say. So anyway, getting a lot of different voices out there I think is important because they can you know people can hear the different voices they want to and also they can see that there's it's made of people. <laughs> And also, it's a cheap way to get started, right? Like, if you're a company looking to start with community management, you can get your one person and then, a, you know, a small flock of folks helping out, and then you have a fair amount of energy to go out there and talk to people and support each other. Yeah, I agree with Matt on a lot of those levels, especially finding someone who's already a part of the community can be huge. You can find someone who doesn't know the community and get them started with it, but it's always easier to find someone who already knows where the audience is and what they're engaged with. Something else, too, I mean, if you're looking to build a community, don't start from scratch. Know who your audience is and the places that they already exist and go there first. Engage with them in those spots and start talking about what you're doing and what you're interested in and you know engage some of them, but find them in the places where they already are. Don't try and start from scratch and pull them into a brand new system. But also, I mean, from a company perspective, the company needs to recognize that it's not always going to be something that's measurable. They need to recognize from the top down that it's something that's extremely important and that without the community a lot of times there is no product and there is no business that you can't always manage that sometimes it's going to be anecdotal stories and things that pan into relationships that become huge deals five six seven years down the road but that's just as important as the advertisements and the webinars and the things that are trackable and are directly linked back to the company. Mary is so right about that. Like the, the, the things that build six or seven years later, is, it's kind of like the uh, butterfly creating hurricanes across the ocean. It's, there's sometimes these really small interactions that build up into something huge and I think as community managers, we have to advocate for community management internally and track those things. Like, hey, remember that time I talked to that person five years ago and now you're getting a million dollar deal? Yeah, totally us. 
I did that. <laughs> I did that, exactly. But you, know, you do get those victories, and, and I think it's important that you, part of being a community manager, I think, is, is in advocating for community management internally and showing how it's working, so seizing those anecdotes. Yeah, and I think to, to just sort of cap off all of that, exactly what both Mary and Matt are saying is dead on, and it's, I think it's not only important to understand that, but it's also important to communicate that with other members of your team. We're heavily invested with what marketing is doing. We're heavily invested with what product's doing. Of course, our upper management is paying attention to what we're doing because they want to make sure that the dollars that they throw at our efforts are actually worth it. But so much of this is, you know, like Mary said earlier, it's very squishy. It's hard to track. It's hard to know that if you send Jason out to Minneapolis DevOps days, there aren't going to be leads that come from that. There is nothing that you can really measure and understand that the X number of dollars that he spent just to fly out there and back and the hotels and the food and all that, that you're actually getting something back from that. So making sure that you have those regular and clear conversations with other members of your team to for them to empathize and to understand what you're doing so that everybody agrees that this is worth it. Well, it sounds like you're saying community management and engagement is a long game, not a short game. And if you're thinking it's a short game, you're going to be disappointed and the community is going to be disappointed in you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and not just the community, but also your organization. If they have expectations that they're going to see on paper some sort of empirical data of your actions and, and your behavior and what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, they're going to be disappointed. One of my favorite stories about community management and it panning off goes back to Nathan Harvey, who's our director of community at Chef, and this was years ago, and he was teaching a one-day tutorial at a conference and had someone just sitting in the background heckling him all day, well, you know, I talked to so-and-so at at this company, and they can do this for me. Can you do that? And, you know, throwing out all sorts of things. And Nathan finally, you know, was kind of at his wit's end and just needing to get on with the content for the class and looked at the guy and went, did they offer you a hug? <laughs> and the guy was like, well, no. And he's like, would you like a hug? The guy was like, uh, sure. And he came up and Nathan gave him, you know, a typical Nathan bear hug. And the guy goes back and sits down and was quiet the rest of the day. And about a year and a half later, we signed them as customers. And it's one of those, like, no, you can't trace it directly back to Nathan giving him a hug. But at the same time, that had an impact. And that's not measurable in any way whatsoever, but it makes a huge difference. And it's little things like that. It's connecting with our community on different ways and different levels than they expect us to. And kind of being the the face of the surprise and delight that comes from being the face of the community and being able to do things like that. Yeah, that's, that's a great story. Well, Matt, Jason, and Mary, I wanted to thank all of you for joining us here on The Ship Show. We appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks. It's awesome. And we will see you all at either the next meetup or conference that you're at, yes? Absolutely. Yeah, you'll definitely see us on the road somewhere. Most definitely. Or at least uh, at a burrito truck in San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back in a moment here on The Ship Show. All right, so welcome back to the Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we are doing a tooltip, uh, catching up on all the tooltips. We had a bunch to go over, and tonight's tooltip is GitQL. It's a tool uh, that allows you to query your Git repositories as if they were SQL repos, so you can do things like select 
message and date from git repo where date is less than this and message are like that and it will list commits for you uh, apparently the it's it's implemented in go we'll link to it of course in the show notes did you uh, I, I know we just linked this to you briefly but or, or right before we did this segment but uh, did you look at some of the examples that are pretty interesting in here some of these uh, examples I have well let's just say I'm loving this new thing where people are adding animated gifs of their projects in like the readme so like right away you get in there and you can you get a sense of queries. what it looks yeah and the best query I just saw go through out of had this running now for the last few minutes or so and it was like select you know select star from commit where commit message is like so, you know, like, let's yeah. find all the commits where we're swearing in these commit messages. Yeah, select hash message for commits where hell in full message or f in full message. <laughs> yes, yes. And author equals Pete Cheslock. I only commit an emoji. Yeah, there you go. There you go. You're going to have to figure out how to query the repos with the emoji. Yeah, pretty cool stuff, especially yeah, for those really, bigger repos. It's really handy. I think uh, this, this, is, this will be handy for generating, like, release notes. If you if you use your uh, commit logs on uh, like internal release notes, not not customer release notes, but uh, yeah, I like those. Yeah. Oh. One thing I noticed. Oh no, they do have it. Okay, I was noticing that you couldn't actually. I didn't see any syntax where you could select by branches, but apparently there is a branch table, a branch and a tag table, so you should be able to query things by branch, which is pretty cool. And it's all an SQLite database, so that's how it keeps all that stuff in sync. You don't need to fire up uh, big, hefty MySQL or Postgres or anything to get this to work. Pretty cool. Check it out. We'll link to GitQL in the show notes. So for next conferences upcoming in the next few weeks, DevOps Days, a bunch of those coming up. Pittsburgh, August 13th and 14th. Chicago. Uh, shout out to Matt Stratton and the crew over there, August 25th and 26th. And uh, Boston, I noticed, uh, September 15th and 16th. Uh, Pete, you going to be at that one? I'm going to try to be. I'm going to try to submit a talk and maybe talk there, but at the very least, I'm going to definitely get over there because nice. it is a hop, skip, and a jump from my yeah. office. Yeah, yeah, you really have no excuse. And then upcoming Velocities, VelociConf Beijing is August 11th and 12th, and then New York on October 12th and 15th. And then also uh, PuppetConf is coming up as well around that time, October 5th through the 9th. Oh, and don't forget uh, Amazon reInvent Conference is uh, October 6th through 9th. Ah, yes, yes. And it's interesting, uh, that actually over, you said October, that week is really full because it's PuppetConf and then DevOps Days Tel Aviv as well. And Velocity Velocity in New York City is the week after, I believe. Yeah, crazy. And then DevOps Enterprise Summit actually is a week after that. Crazy, crazy, crazy conference season. So, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Boston, Pete Cheslock signing off. And we will see you all in a couple weeks. Thank <laughs> you.